All right, we are going to spend most of our time tonight in Leviticus chapters 8 through 10, but I would ask you initially to open to Exodus chapter 19. So if you received one of these half-sheet handouts when you came in, front, back, we'll see if we make it through all four parts. I think we will, but if we don't, we'll just pick up next week. Uh, we're, we're continuing our study through the book of Leviticus, going along with our holiness theme on, on Sunday mornings. And so tonight we're going to try to take the theme of priesthood and, and take all three of those chapters that go together and, and look at it that way. Last week, I hope you enjoyed hearing from Emmett and, and Farshid. Uh, thanks for praying for me as I was preaching a revival down at my, my brother's church. My brother teaches, the brother just younger than me, teaches high school science at Walters High School, south of Lawton, southwest Oklahoma, and then he's a part-time youth minister at a little church called Letitia Baptist Church. Uh, it's out east of Lawton, just a little bit, the big city of Pumpkin Center um, that's there on, on Highway 7, east of, east of Lawton. And so it was fun. I got to see my high school baseball coach, got to see my high school math teacher, uh, a lot of people that, that I knew growing up who were either just came there to, to say hi or are actually, actually part of that church. And so uh, really thankful for uh, God's work in, in that church and how he's used my brother and the, the guy that's the pastor there now. So it's really, it was a neat, neat opportunity. Uh, but we're going to continue this study through Leviticus for the next, the next several weeks. Before we look at Exodus 19, if you look at point number one on your notes, we're, we're talking at the very beginning here about the foundation and framework of priesthood. And I might just say something at the beginning that part of my hope in the holiness sermon series and then what we're doing on Wednesday night is that as we develop in theology, one of the things we want to do really well is think about our terminology. Um, it's cheesy. But go with me. Theology is related to terminology. Um, and what I mean by that is sometimes in church life and in Christianity, we can get loose with our language or loose with our words. And so language gets adapted in the, in the church, and we know what we mean by that language. It's just that it doesn't match well with the New Testament. And so you take contemporary church life, and you take the term saint well, we've talked about this. When we think of saint, we immediately go to a Catholic church reference um, or to the New Orleans saints or something like that. We take saint and we forget that in the New Testament, every believer is a saint. And you say, well, that's just a Catholic problem. Well, in just about every Baptist church I've grown up in, you have minister of and you'll have an area. Minister of and you'll have an area. In the New Testament, every believer is a minister. Um, and so ministry in the New Testament, minister in the New Testament, is not a term that relates to a specific role in the church. Minister is a role that relates to every follower uh, of Jesus Christ. One of the areas that we get in trouble with as well is when we think of the term priest. When we think of priest, you know, contemporary church life, once again, we go back to usually a, a Catholic background and priests that you may have known or, or been around, and you think about just the term priest. Well, guess what? <laughs> when you look at the New Testament, who are the priests? We are. Uh, that every believer in, in uh, Protestant church life, Baptist church life, we talk about the phrase, the priesthood of the believers, uh, that, that 
in Christ we become a, a kingdom of priests, a people of priests. Now, where does that, that language come from? Well, let's track it back to Exodus chapter 19, and I've given you a couple of other, other references here. Exodus chapter 19, starting in verse 1, it says, On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. Now moving to chapter 9, Exodus 19, verse 3. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. Now, before we see what Moses said, let's, let's stop for just a second. Um, if you like to write in your Bible and write little study notes, you may actually already have the study note in your Bible. But if you don't, at the top of Exodus chapter 19, you can write, kind of draw an arrow pointing to the right and then write in Numbers chapter 10. What that tells you is Exodus 19, the people get to Sinai. They're not going to leave until Numbers chapter 10. So you have this period of time that runs from Exodus 19 to Numbers chapter 10 that is all of what God does and says to the people there around Mount Sinai. And so, so much of the history of Israel, so much of even what you learn in the New Testament tracks back to, to this situation. So Exodus 19 is an important chapter in your Bible because there's a marker here that starts a period of time that's not going to be completed until you get to Numbers, Numbers chapter 10. But what happens here as well is Exodus 3 is being fulfilled for the people. When God appeared to Moses to say, hey, you're the guy, you're going to lead the people out of Egypt, he tells him, you're going to come back to this mountain. You're going to lead the people back here. And so when Exodus 19 happens, it's a sign that God has kept that promise, that covenant that he made with, with Moses in Exodus chapter 3. Now, what does he say to him? Verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So the first thing he does is he points them back to the salvation, to the rescue that God has provided. Look ahead in, verse, um, in chapter 20. should be on the same page, or you might have to turn one page to the right. When the Ten Commandments are given, when the Ten Commandments start, never forget how the Ten Commandments begin there in, in Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So both in chapter 19 and in chapter 20, before you get the law, before you get this proclamation, you get a reminder of, of God's salvation, of his rescue. So it's not, here's the law, keep it, and then I'll rescue It's, I've rescued you, I've saved you, now here's the law to live as my people. We have to get those in, in the right order. Sometimes if we're not careful, we say, well, in the Old Testament, people were saved by good works, and in the New Testament, we're saved by faith. Nope. From the beginning to the end of the Bible, salvation is by God's grace through faith. It's always salvation. Here's how to live as my people. Um, now, obviously, it takes on a new meaning when Jesus uh, comes and brings the new covenant. But it's not in the Old Testament they were saved by works. In the New Testament, they're saved by grace. It's always God's grace from 
Genesis chapter 3 to Revelation chapter 22. That, that's the reality there. So it's, it's salvation and then the giving of the law. Uh, back to chapter 19, verse 5. So he says, I've uh, I brought you out. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice. So this has happened. Now what are you going to do? You're going to obey my voice and you're going to keep my covenant. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. That covenant language takes us all the way back to, to God's interaction with the patriarchs. Uh, Genesis 12, 15, 18. When I say patriarchs, um, I mean Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, those, those key figures in the book of Genesis where God came to them. The reason that reference is important is God's not making up a new plan when you get to Mount Sinai, when you get to the story of the Exodus. This is just a continuation of his covenant and his plan that he's made with his people all the way back to the time of Abraham. Um, so never, when you read your Bible, don't get the feeling of uh, God's making it up as he goes along. <laughs> it's this idea of he establishes this part of his plan and then the next stage, the next stage. So when covenant is used here in verse 5, immediately they're thinking back to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. This is what God has prepared us for. Uh, so keep my covenant and you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. In other words, I could have chosen any people because the whole earth is mine, but, but I've chosen you. On your notes, I think I made a little note there. Treasured possession was a common phrase um, in the ancient world referring to royal property. Uh, so, so you're a part of, of God's uh, keenly treasure. He, he values you to that degree. I think of when in the New Testament, God is speaking to Jesus as a son. He says, you are my beloved son. That beloved son language is also used in the Old Testament in reference to Israel. And so when he speaks to his people, it's not the people I just put up with. It's you're my beloved son. This is going to be a really bad illustration, but go with me. It's not going to fit, but I'm going to try it anyway because I'm thinking about it. Um, when I said saints earlier, it made me think of the New Orleans Saints. And so if you saw the other night the highlights when Drew Brees set the, uh, set the record uh, for the passing yards, and they stopped the entire game, and his family came down there on the, on the field, and you saw the interaction that he had with his boys and just this obvious love that, that he had for his kids. And his, here he's speaking to them about how much he loves them and cares for them, and you could see all the players around, all the people around, but these were his real treasured possessions. Like, these were the people that he wanted to, wanted to spend time with. Um, and his wife is obviously the hero because she got all four kids down to the field. Everybody looked great. She had to carry the trophy and the kids back, up, uh, back upstairs. And my friends who actually do know her, she's really that, that impressive um, to, to be able to pull that off. But it just made me think about, wow, there's somebody who all these accolades, everything going around, and all he cares is just to tell his kids how much he loves them and, and speaks into their life. And so it's a little bit of that same idea going on here. Okay, so back there to verse 5. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Verse 6, which is what we've been trying to get to all this time. Um, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. 
Now, this was going to be shocking because this reference to the people of Israel serving as a kingdom of priests who would play this role, you don't get this exact reference anywhere else in the Old Testament, but you, it is picked up in the New Testament. Three different times, and this is there on your notes, if you look up to point, uh, point B, under that foundation and framework of the priesthood, that all those in Christ are priests. Hebrews 13, 1 Peter 2, Revelation 1. You get these references to the fact that we are going to be a kingdom of priests. Kingdom of priests and holy nation are meant to be two phrases that explain one another. What does it mean to be a kingdom of priests? Well, it means you're going to be a holy nation. What does the phrase, what does the word holy mean? It means set apart, distinct, separated from. So you're a nation among the nations. Why? So you don't have to interact with anybody? No, because you're going to have a special purpose as a kingdom of priests. There's an internal purpose and there's an external purpose. The internal purpose as a holy nation is that you would live as God's holy people. What does that look like? Well, we're going to spend several weeks looking at it throughout the book of Leviticus. What does it mean to be a holy people internally? Externally, it means you're going to shine that holiness, you're going to show that holiness to the other nations. So it's, I know you're not surprised that I found up, in, and out again in, in the Bible, but it's up, we are God's holy people, so internally we're going to be holy in, among ourselves as a holy nation, and then that holiness shines out. It's not just for us to say, hey, look at us, we're holier than thou, we're, we're better than everybody else. It's, this is what it looks like when God is keen over a group of people. Now we're going to show that to people around us, which is exactly the picture of the church. Why is it so important that the church is holy? So that we can display that holiness to the world around us. And so in a world of chaos and turmoil and darkness, people would be drawn to this is what it means to be a part of the people of God. So internally I'm holy so that externally I can be holy uh, as well. The goal of a priest, this is the way I learned it in college at OBU. It's what stuck with me, and so I keep it as the definition. I know there's a better definition out there, but this is the one that I learned, so I think it's still good. A priest is someone who represents God to people and people to God. It's that mediator type of role, and so God has established the priest so that he can show his image and his glory to the people, and then the people need a we to know a way to know who God is and what it's like to be related to him. And so a priest serves as that kind of in-between. Now we know that in Christ, we don't require a mediator to make our way to God. We don't need an earthly priest in order to, to access God. But for people who don't know the Lord, we can serve that type of role. We can show them this is what God is like when he's in charge of your life. And then we can talk to that person and say, and this is how you're able to be related to God. So you're still representing God to people and people to God. And you're still doing that role by being holy internally and then living out that holiness externally. Okay, so that takes us over to Leviticus chapter 8. If you turn over to Leviticus 8, Leviticus 1 through 7 established the sacrificial system. So we worked through those five major sacrifices, what their purposes were, how they worked. Once you have the sacrifices, though, you need someone to carry them out. 
You need someone to make sure this is done correctly. If this is our way to be made right with God, somebody needs to be in charge of making sure it's done correctly. It's kind of like that old business idea that if it's everybody's job, it's nobody's job. And so God establishes a group of people to step in. He says, it's your job. Everybody needs to be aware of this, but it's your job to make sure this is carried out correctly. And so there's this establishment of the priesthood. Leviticus chapter 8. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments and the anointing oil and the bull of the sin offering and the two rams and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So you're going to have a public display of what's happening so nobody can miss out. Nobody can say, I didn't know. It's going to be public what's happening here, and Moses is still the key actor at this point. You're going to see a transition here in just a second, but at this point, Moses is still running the show. Verse 5, Moses said to the congregation, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. And so Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. And he put the coat on him and tied the sash around his waist and clothed him with a robe and put the ephod on him and tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him, binding it to him with the band. And he placed the breastpiece on him. And in the breastpiece, he put the Urim and the Thummim. Uh, these were those uh, objects used for, for decision-making according to the Spirit of God. You see them show up a few times in Scripture. And he set the turban on his head, and on the turban in front he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. Let's keep reading through 13. Uh, so starting in verse 10 there. Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all its utensils and the basin and its stand to consecrate them. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. And Moses brought Aaron's sons and clothed them with coats and tied sashes around their waist and bound caps on them as the Lord commanded Moses. So looking at your notes, what's happened up to this point? Uh, point B there under priestly prep preparation. God is consecrating the priest. He's setting them apart. He's preparing them for what they've been called to do. So first, they are washed. They are cleansed in preparation for service. In each of these, we want to try to make an appropriate New Testament connection. What does this mean for us as priests before the Lord? It's this idea that you don't just start to serve because you think I'm supposed to serve. It's cleansed, washed by we would say, sometimes churchy words, but we would say washed by the blood of the Lamb, that, that, our, that our lives are cleansed, we're, we're made pure in order to be able to serve, serve the Lord. And I give you a couple of verses that apply to that. The idea of anointing is, it symbolizes the blessing and, and God's bestowal of power and position on someone. And so kings or prophets, or there was idea that the, that the Messiah would be anointed. We can make a strong connection toward the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. For, for believers, when we think about anointing, it is right and proper to think about being anointed by the power of God's Holy Spirit. And so we're washed, we're made clean, we're anointed. Number three, we're clothed uh, as a believer. 
in a sense, you get new clothing. This shows up in Galatians, where it says that we are clothed with Christ, clothed with the righteousness of Christ. So the old self is taken off, and the new self is placed on. Colossians chapter 3, Paul tells the people, put off, put away the old way of living, and put on these new clothes. So, so take off the old clothes that signified your old way of living, put on the new clothes that signify a new way of living. So the idea that the priest would be given new clothes fits perfectly with what God does with his people in the New Testament. Hey, get rid of the old clothes. I've got new clothes uh, for, you, for you to wear. I know I've told you guys multiple times about, I think when I see hurricanes come, it makes me think about how Amanda, we had just gotten married, and she was in the process of turning over my wardrobe from college guy wardrobe to married guy uh, wardrobe, and so she purposely left some of our clothes in New Orleans hoping they would go underwater, um, and they did, and so I lost all my jean shorts in one moment when they all went underwater, and so I've never owned another pair of jean shorts from that moment of Hurricane Katrina, so she got rid of the old clothes, so you don't need those. Those are college guy clothes, like you need a new wardrobe. This is the idea. Get rid of the old clothes. You're clothed in a new way. You're clothed with Christ now, so live like that. Um, be, be the team, be a part of the team that you're called to, to play for. I think we referenced that analogy on Sunday morning a few weeks ago. Uh, the next thing there is the idea of purification and sacrifices. We're not going to read all of this language, but it picks up in verse 14 and begins to talk about some of these offerings that we've seen before. Uh, let me draw your attention maybe to verse uh, 22, just for a kind of an example of this because it's an interesting language. So verse 22, then he presented the other ram. So, so Moses is making these sacrifices to prepare the priest. He presented the other ram, the ram of ordination. That would make our ordination ceremonies more, more exciting. Um, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. Verse 23, he killed it and Moses took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. I read a few commentaries trying to figure out why, you know, what, why here, here, and big toe. Um, most, most scholars, most commentators think it has to do with the extremity of the head, the, the furthest extremity of the head, furthest extremity of the hand, furthest extremity of the foot. And so it's a way of saying this is what would happen to all of the body. So to the fullest extent, our language might be from head, we're covered from head to toe. Um, and so earlobe, thumb, uh, big toe of the foot was a way of saying by covering the outermost portion of the body, you've covered the whole thing. Works for me. I don't, I, I don't know what to make for, of it other than that. And, and plus it makes sense. You, you get the idea that you're, you're covered from head to toe by just covering those, those, particular, uh, those particular parts of the body. And so there's this purification um, that, that is done there from, from 22 down to 30. Let's pick up in, oh, let's pick up in 31 maybe. Moses said to Aaron and his sons, Boil the flesh of the sacrifice at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and there eat it and the bread that is in the basket of ordination offerings as I commanded, saying, Aaron and his sons shall eat it. 
and what remains of the flesh and the bread you shall burn up with fire. Verse 33, and you shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days until the days of your ordination are completed, for it will take seven days to ordain you. If you look on your notes there under preparation, maybe I'll just uh, point out a couple of things. There's a note there about the ear, thumb, toe, every part completely dedicated. In verse 33, at the very end of 33, where it says it will take seven days to ordain you, do all the translations say ordain? Anybody have anything different there? Consecrate? Okay. So the language there is the idea of filling the hand of strengthening the hand, it was, it was providing what was needed to do the task, um, giving the authorization, providing what's necessary and giving the authorization. If you're in charge of people at work, if you're going to delegate tasks, you also have to delegate responsibility to complete the task uh, and the authorization to complete the task. And so it was giving what was necessary, filling the hand with the strength and power to do something, and then giving the authorization to, to carry it out. So they were ordained, they were prepared for this. What does that have to do with us as believers? Because of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and especially something like 2 Peter chapter 1, that God has given us everything necessary for, for life and godliness, as a believer, we can't say, I haven't been prepared to live and serve as a follower of Jesus. Because of the power of the work of the Spirit in our lives, we have what's necessary. We've been gifted. We've been empowered by the Spirit to do what God has called us to, to do. Now, do we have to work on that gift? Do we have to train? Sure we do. We, there's preparation that goes into that. But the priest had to go through this long preparation period. They had to have their hands filled. And so ordination is this language of their hands being filled. They had to be given what was necessary. And then they had to be given the authorization to carry it out. As believers, because of the work of the Spirit, We've been ordained. In the church, we use ordination language when we set aside deacons or pastors for that office in the church. But in a real sense, and in a very true theological sense, as a follower of Jesus, you have been ordained. So go home, pull up Microsoft Word, print yourself off a little ordination certificate, stick it in a frame and stick it up on your wall. It's good theology. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, you're not going to be able to marry anybody, bury anybody, you won't get a tax break, but that is a, an option for you theologically is that you've been ordained, you've been prepared, you have what is necessary to live as a priest, to, to serve the Lord, to do that type, of, that type of work. And so they're prepared. You get to chapter 9. On the eighth day, Moses called, this is chapter 9, verse 1, on the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel, and he said to Aaron, take for yourself. Now, do you pick up the little transition that happened? Who did the sacrificing in chapter 8? Moses. What does Moses say here? Get yourself a bull. <laughs> like you, you, go, you go do it. You've been prepared. I've gotten you to this point. Now it's time. So there's a very, very distinct transition in chapter 9. Moses 
has prepared for Aaron and his sons to begin carrying out these tasks that they've been then called to do. So he tells them, take yourself a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, blemish, and offer them before the Lord. And say to the people of Israel, verse 3, I'm not going to speak for you anymore. You're, you're the one speaking. Now there's irony here when you think about the calling of Moses and Aaron and who did the speaking initially and now how it's kind of being transitioned back to that in, in a sense. And so all through chapter 9, what you see is Aaron and his sons doing exactly what they were prepared to do. Um, every parent's dream. I've prepared you for this moment. I pass it off to you. Now you're going to go and do it. Now these guys are not obviously father-son relationship. It's a different relationship there with the brothers. But, but it's the idea, now you, it's yours to take. I've delegated it to you. You go and run with it. Skip down to verse 22 of chapter 9. And then we're going to have to save chapter 10 for, for next week. But skip down to verse 22. Here's a pretty cool uh, language that's used here. Verse 22, Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Now, before we get to the end of verse 23 there and talk about that, notice what's happened. So, Aaron and his sons, the priests, their hands have been filled. They've been given what they needed. They've been given the authorization to do what God has called them to do in chapter 8. Chapter 9, they do it. They use, so, their hands are filled and now they use their hands to offer the sacrifices, and they lift up their hands to bless the people. God's given them power and authority, and then they put that power and authority to good use for the people of God. Perfect imagery of how we're called to live as the church. God has given us the power of his spirit. God has prepared us, cleansed us, washed us, anointed us, given, filled our hands, and now he says, I filled your hands for the love of God, don't just hold on to it. Like, your hands are full, and then you just say, ah, oh, like it's just mine to keep. You see how strange that language would be if chapter 9 was like Aaron and his sons ran and hid in their closet and held on to all this? It's the idea that they've been given this, and then they turn around and they offer it, and then they raise their hands to bless the people, to, to speak God's power over them. What happens? End of verse 23 the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and fire, imagine this scene. I know it's hard to imagine, but verse 24, and fire came out before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. You can imagine that would when God's glory and power shows up to, to that degree, uh, what can the people do? That, that they cry out, maybe in fear, but it seems more in awe, the, the good fear, the, the reverence and awe. They shout and they fall down before the Lord in, in worship. On your notes there, uh, point D under that priestly worship section, section, this manifestation of God's power and worship, how does this come about? 
They followed the pattern God had given them. They submitted to God's words, and they had faith in the way that he had given them. And there's this singular moment here where God pours out his glory. Now, every time that the priests offer the sacrifice and bless the people, does the same event happen? No, not exactly like this. This is a strategic outpouring of the glory and power of God. Acts chapter 2. You think about the power of the Holy Spirit coming on the people. What's the imagery used in Acts chapter 2 of the power of the coming of the Holy Spirit? What, flames. Yeah, flames, flames of fire. Now, every time that the Holy Spirit comes upon the people of God, are flames of fire involved? No. Oftentimes, it, it's not like that. In fact, I've Never visually seen it like that. But is the power of God's Spirit still at work among his people? You better believe it is. When they offered the sacrifices on a daily basis, were they standing around waiting for the fire to show up again? No, they knew that God's power was, was still at work. Just because that particular moment, that strategic moment, set the stage for the fact that the people would faithfully, day after day, serve the Lord. And so you see the parallel here between what God is doing for his people in Exodus chapter, um, Leviticus chapter 9 and what he does for his people in Acts chapter 2. I think the language I'd want you to go home with, though, is that language of having your hands full, that, that God has filled our hands. I, I kidded about printing off an ordination certificate, but if that helps you theologically, if you say, God, you have given me power, not of my own doing, but of your doing. You've given me gifts. You've called us to go out as your people. You filled my hands with this. Now, what am I doing with that? God, what have you filled my hands with? And then what am I doing? How am I blessing and serving others because of what, what, what you've given me? Um, so let's, let's use that as our imagery to go home with. And let's pray together because we're out of time. Father, thank you for this group of people and how much they mean to, to me and my family. God, thank you for, for Drew being here to, to lead us in worship through music. And God, I pray for him as he continues to, to follow after and serve you in, in many different ways. God, thank you for the preschool and kid and youth uh, ministry that's going on here uh, around the building. Father, thank you for, for Jeff and our Sunday school leaders that are training and praying together tonight. God, I pray for us as we've, we've stood before your word from Leviticus 8 and 9. God, let us think about how you filled our hands. How have you empowered? How have you gifted? How have you resourced us? God, you've, you've called us to this. You've filled our hands. What are we doing with that? God, are we worshiping you as we serve and bless those around us? And in response to that, God, that, that we would continue to trust you, continue to obey you in the days to come. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.